Welcome to episode one of the Trailmark Podcast. Today's guest is an English adventurer, author, and motivational speaker. He cycled over 46,000 miles around the world over the course of four years, and in 2012, he was named National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year. He's famous for pioneering the concept of micro-adventures, advocating for short, accessible adventure to enrich everyday life. He's authored several books, including Moods of Future Joy, 10 Lessons from the Road, and Micro-Adventures, with his most recent publication being Local, a year exploring a single map. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And now I bring you Alistair Humphreys. Thank you so much for joining the uh, call here today. We, uh, we've been having My a bit pleasure. of a back and forth over the last couple of weeks via email. So it's, it's a pleasure having you on board. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. How how long have you been podcasting? Do you, you do you enjoy doing it? Is it work? Is it fun? This is number one. You are the very first. Oh wow! Oh really? <laughs> oh yes. Oh fantastic! I, it's only something that I started over the summer. Nice. Oh, that's great. Oh, I'm I'm excited to be number one. I did a podcast interview yesterday, and I was by coincidence number one thousand on their podcast. So uh, <laughs> here's hoping this is the start of lots for you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what uh, projects you're working on at the moment and what inspired this focus. So at the moment, I've been spending a whole year just exploring my local neighborhood, which might sound a bit boring. Uh, but if I tell you that I live just outside a big city in England and it's a kind of suburban slash farmland, then that might sound even more boring. <laughs> um, and this was the challenge that I was trying to take on, really, was to see whether I could find nearby nature and wildness close to where I live. And therefore, hopefully, by extension, whether we can all find a bit more nature and wildness where we live. And that adventure doesn't have to be just saved for the vacations or some sort of big trip of a lifetime, but that perhaps we can find a bit of nature and adventure every single day. So I spent a whole year exploring just the 20 kilometers around where I live. And when I first started, I was worried it was going to be quite boring and very restrictive, but it actually turned into one of the most interesting projects of my life. And I realized that I need way more than one year to properly see what's just outside my front door. So yeah, it's been a really interesting, surprisingly interesting project. So going from something like exploring the globe to exploring your own backyard, uh, what inspired a shift like that? One of the reasons why I started wanting to explore locally was because of my experience of exploring exploring mm. more widely so yeah the bigger trips I've done I've done stuff like cycling around the world for four years and rowing a little boat across the Atlantic Ocean and some big expedition type stuff and that's fantastic I'm I loved those I'm very fortunate to have done them and I'd encourage anyone to go have a big adventure they're just brilliant experiences in life I mean cycling around the world is pretty good for your carbon footprint but some of the other stuff for example expeditions up in Greenland or up near the North Pole they involved jumping a lot of airplanes and I started to feel guilty really that I claim that I love these wild places but I was kind of wrecking them by jumping on airplanes to go see them so could I protect the wild places I love by not going to them 
um, which have felt felt to me on a selfish level like a really big sacrifice and something I didn't really want to do. If you're going to try and make some sort of positive change environmentally, you don't want it to be a negative sacrifice because that just sucks and you'll eventually give up. You need to try and find a hopeful, optimistic way of looking at it. So my idea of I wonder whether I can find curiosity and enthusiasm and interest locally and close to home without needing to go on a plane. That was that was what sort of set me going on this smaller thing. And then particularly because I put stuff online, I write books and stuff, potentially that I would influence other people's behavior. So, you know, if I jump on a plane and say, hey, it's amazing to jump on a plane and go to the North Pole, then maybe other people do that. And that then amplifies the harm that I'm doing to the environment. So maybe the flip side is if I can say to lots of people, hey, don't jump on an airplane, go explore your local neighborhood, then perhaps that might amplify a bit of positive change, too. You know, a lot of people, you know, explore the whole world, but they don't explore their backyard. They wouldn't know how to get 20 miles away without getting completely lost if you didn't give them a map. You know, the concept of that is kind of crazy if you really think about it. It's like, how is that even possible? 300 years ago, if you were to tell somebody that, they would be like, what are you out of your mind? I've never been 20 miles away from my house, let alone around the world. I try to explore my backyard as much as possible because as a uh, newly graduated student, the funds aren't quite there to uh, hop on a plane and go all over the place. <laughs> certain slices of the world myself included take it as almost a take it for granted of course if i want to do something exciting i'm going to jump on a plane and go mm -hmm. to africa or china of course that's what i need to do for adventure that's such a a new and privileged way of looking at things and and you you're right about not knowing what's down the road that part of my reckoning for deciding to explore my local map was to look on the map and think wow there's a town 5 miles from my front door that i've never been to in my life that's ridiculous. Let's go have a look, see what it's like. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's good. And and what you're doing, just jumping on your bike and cycling off. Um, in all of my adventures, I've never found a better way of traveling and exploring than doing exactly that. Just put a tent on the back of your bike and cycle away from your front door. It's just perfect adventuring. So with this change in your life when it comes to adventuring, how has your storytelling evolved from going from a grand scale to a more local scale with your latest projects? Well, I probably have to admit it's not as exciting a story. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure that my uh, the book I write about exploring this local map isn't going to be as wow crazy as cycling across China or Siberia or something. So it's a different sort of thing, I think. I wrote a few years ago, I wrote a book called Micro Adventures, which was a book about having short, simple local adventures wherever you live. And I thought I was probably going to write like, a new version of that, an even smaller scale version of that, adventures you can find in your lunch hour at home. But actually, over the course of exploring my map, I enjoyed all those things, still running, cycling, camping. But actually, what came to really fill me with passion and motivate me in terms of my storytelling this time around was the environmental impacts that we're having on the landscape, the problems that we're causing, and some possible solution. So it actually became much more of nature writing than anything I've done before. Whether or not any of my readers of my previous books will want to join me in this sort of change of direction and come with me, or if I'm about to find myself with absolutely zero book sales, um, only time will tell. <laughs> Just speaking about stories and, and all the stories that you've collected over the years, have you ever returned home and hesitated to talk about it? Has there ever been a story that was challenging to tell? 
Yes, there was, which is that I ha I feel that I live two very separate lives. I have my sort of internet life and my book writing life, which is, look at me, I'm Alistair Humphreys, adventure guy. I'm going to show off about myself, about how amazing I am, and then hopefully you'll buy the book. So look at me. And then I have social media, which is like, look at me doing this cool stuff. And there's that sort of outward projecting public kind of life. But then there's also my real life, my private life, my home, my family, my friends. And although I spend a lot of time showing off about myself on the internet, in in the real world, I'm actually quite shy and I don't really want to tell people about that sort of side of my life. So a few years ago, I walked through northern Spain uh, playing the violin incredibly badly, but with no money and no credit card and only my awful music skills to earn money. And it was a fantastic, brilliant adventure. I made a YouTube video, which is classic me. It's like slightly comedic, bit of an idiot, having a good time and an adventure. Violin is really, really hard. <laughs> no one is going to give me any money ever. I'm going to starve in Spain. And I started, and that was the book that I wrote as well. But, but the part that I wasn't talking about was that one of the reasons that I'd gone to do that trip was that I was really starting to struggle internally with what adventure meant to me. So when I was just out of university in my early 20s, and I'd read all these books about crazy people doing crazy stuff, I, I kind of set these rules for my life of what adventure meant. And it was about doing epic stuff and being really tough and pushing myself as hard as I could and gaining some sort of self-worth and identity through pushing myself insanely hard and that was all great but by the time I walked through Spain I was a, a middle-aged guy who was 40 or about 40-ish and uh, suddenly all of the thing, the values and what was important to me then weren't so much now but what I'd failed to do was to evolve my rules for life over the years to the point where, where when I went to Spain, I was actually pretty unhappy with life. I had this online persona of, yeah, crazy adventure guy. And then my real life was nothing like that at all. And, I, and that disconnect started to feel uncomfortable and sort of almost fraudulent. And so I decided with the Spain trip to tell that story of my struggle between trying to be a good husband and father, but also a adventurous soul who wanted to just go off and chase the horizon. And so that I really struggled about whether to write that side of things. But I'm glad I did. I think the more honest you can be in your storytelling, the more people will respond to it. And if through your honesty, you can reach someone who is also in the same sort of struggle and they email you back saying, hey, I read this book and it really helped me, then that just feels wonderful. That makes the writing feel like a useful thing to do with your time. How do you think the locals of that area saw you as a as this traveling dude playing the violin terribly all over Spain? What do you think people thought about you doing that? Yeah, it was a fascinating experience because some of my trips have been wilderness experiences where it's me in the empty emptiness and they're great. And then some have been very human oriented trips like cycling around the world where every day you need to talk to shopkeepers and ask for directions. It's very human. Spain was somewhere in between the two. So I had no money, no credit card. So if I wanted to eat today, then I had to connect with a human enough so that they would give me some money. And I did that by playing my violin very badly and earning some money. And that felt really important to me, the notion that I was working and earning the money. It felt significantly different to me to just sitting there with my hands out, sort of 
begging for money. Although if you heard me play the violin, it was horrific. It didn't sound good at all. So what I found very interesting then was how did people respond to me? So I'm a, I don't look Spanish. I'm sort of paler than Spanish people. I had, I'd been hiking for a few weeks. I was quite dirty. I had a backpack and then I had my violin with a case out in front of you, like you see musicians do. And I was playing away in their town square. So as people walked towards me, I think they would instantly see this guy's a foreigner. Uh, he, he's quite dirty, hasn't washed for a while. I'm guessing he's on some sort of long walk, some sort of long journey. Oh, he's also absolutely terrible at the violin. So these things they would all just get by looking at me. And then people have to make a snap judgment in the two seconds it takes to walk past me. Do I just ignore this guy completely? Do I you know, look at my phone and pretend that I'm busy with that? Do I look at him and give a horrified face because he's ruining my day with his sound? Do I look at him and give him a sympathetic smile? Or do I pause, reach into my pocket and give him some money? And I found that kindness of people to give this total stranger money. And then nearly always they wouldn't stop to talk. So they they just carry on their walk. So it's just a random, not random, but a very small gesture of kindness to someone who's clearly foreign and different. And then off they went. So it's it was very positive in terms of the um, my perceptions of human nature. Have you ever been in a situation where you completely felt out of your depth? I try to avoid those situations because I really like yes. being alive. And right. I'm really not an adrenaline junkie at all. But I did completely lose control when I was crossing Iceland by foot and by packraft. Packrafts, these small little inflatable boats, like little rubber dinghies, essentially. But uh, they're pretty tough and they're great on white water. And I was with a friend, Canadian guy, and the two of us, we walked from the north coast of Canada not from northwest Canada, north coast of Iceland, up into the centre of Iceland, across a glacier to the source of a river. And then we followed the river till we could get into our park grass and paddle downstream. It was a fantastic, simple, but not easy adventure. And the river got quite wild and crazy and it started to get beyond our skill levels. And at one point we got to this gorge where the water was thundering down, really tough white water. And we we walked up and down and tried to check if it was safe, if it was doable. And we were both really scared. And I kind of thought, this is too dangerous. But then I thought, this will look so awesome on YouTube if we do this. And so I did it. So I went and paddled down this crazy dangerous bit of water. I instantly flipped. I was thrown around, dragged underwater. I, it's the closest I've come in life to thinking, right, I'm definitely about to be dead. Somehow, though, I managed to drag myself from the boat to the riverbank, and then I went sprinting up the river, like blowing my little whistle on my life jacket to try and stop Chris before he came down. And luckily, he didn't come down the river, and all was fine. Two important lessons came from that. The first was... I'd forgotten to press record on the camera. Oh, <laughs> so I missed my epic, <laughs> heroic near-death experience. And the second, which is a much more important lesson, was a reminder to myself of even though I'm trying to do things for some sort of public consumption, you know, to be for YouTube, to write books, at its heart, I'm doing these adventures for myself. And for them to be worthwhile to me is sufficient. I shouldn't be just doing these things for the validation and the praise of other people. And I definitely shouldn't be doing stuff that I think might kill me just to get some likes on the internet. And so from then on, I came up with this rule to ask myself before I do any adventure at all, which is, 
would I do this thing if nobody ever found out about it? And that really helps me differentiate between whether I actually want to do the trip and it feels important to me, or if it's just a vanity show-offing publicity stunt, in which case I should steer well clear. I really like yeah, the point that you made there about doing things regardless of whether or not they gain social media praise. I find that for myself, when I do a lot of adventuring and cycling and whatnot way out into the wild, when I first started recording things and I first started actually videoing myself doing this stuff about a year ago, it was all incredibly exciting, of course, because you're in that honeymoon phase of like, oh, I have all these cool ideas of how I can piece this together with epic music and drone shots and, and whatnot. But then after so much time of doing that, it almost feels like it takes away from the core sense of the adventure. And it almost becomes a little bit of a hassle going out of your way to place the camera, to put the drone up, you know, setting up. And then, you know, you're carrying all that gear as well, which is another hassle on its own, especially if you have limited storage on a bike. I guess the, I suppose the question here is how much adventuring do you actually do leaving behind the storytelling aspect and just doing it purely out of pleasure for yourself? These days, the answer would be zero percent. Um, okay. <laughs> and and that's for essentially because adventuring is my job. Now, yeah. so yeah. if I go do an adventure, then I might as well at least write a blog post about it or do something. So the answer now is nothing. And I completely uh, have gone through the same phases of you with the feelings of, wow, this is cool to have buy expensive cameras and play around. And this is fun. And, and then, oh man, this is a hassle. And also, geez, this is really sucking away from the actual adventure. I wanted to have this simple wilderness experience. And now all I'm paying attention to is stupid screens i'm trying to get away from screens so i've very much uh, gone through those phases the balance that i've tried to come to is that i really enjoy the creative side of adventuring now i really enjoy trying to think how will i frame the camera here what story will i tell through this so i've, I've come to really enjoy that although setting up your tripod cycling miles into the distance then turning all the way around back and coming to get your camera is a of course, annoying, but I really like the storytelling. And for me, this has added to the adventures in the long run. It's changed them, definitely changed them. But rather than it being pure adventure, for me, it's now a bit less adventure because I'm faffing around a bit, but with the bonus of some storytelling. And I personally really like that. What I try to do, though, to maximize my sense of being in the moment of the adventure for example, in Spain, I wanted to be offline, but equally, I knew it was a cool story. So I needed to tell that work wise. So I filmed it, which I would deal with when I came home. And then I took photos along the way, but I didn't upload all that stuff to Instagram while I was out there. I did the storytelling after I got home. And I find just being disconnected from the internet is a really helpful way of trying to get some sort of balance between adventuring and the creative side. I know that adventuring can be a very solitary thing for most people. I mean, it certainly is for myself. I spend probably 90 to 100% of my time out on the bike on my own. Do you find that the solitude has shaped your philosophy on life? This very much taught me a lot about myself and yeah. for better and for worse. And I think that's a really good reason to 
adventure solo. I quickly realized that I was not nearly as tough and heroic and brilliant and amazing as a person as maybe I thought that I was. <laughs> Going off on adventures on your own can be quite a humbling experience. You take the wrong turn and you forget your tent poles and you get lost and you get really cold and you want to give up. And there's no one to blame for any of those things. It's you. You stuffed up. You are the idiot. You are now the weak, pathetic person. There's no hiding. I find that it's really powerful introspection. But also, you know, it's not all negative on the plus side. Through doing lots of solo adventures, I guess I've developed a quiet self-confidence of, hey, I've persevered through those cold times when I was miserable and I found a way around it when I was stupid and I forgot the tent poles and I overcame that and I got to the end and it wasn't too bad. And all of those obstacles and difficult things, I overcame them myself. So I found it's been really good for making me not think I'm super amazing, but also be confident that I'm not a complete loser or an idiot either. So it's quite nice just to sort of level. I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle, which is good. So I think that's been a useful thing. But also you have a lot of time on the bike to think about whatever are the important issues in your own personal life. Although I have to say that when I set off to cycle around the world, I thought that I'd think all sorts of clever philosophical thoughts. But I quickly realized I spent almost all of my time just thinking, mm, I'm hungry, can't wait till the next meal. And I spent a lot of time thinking about not much more than food. But yeah, I think going on a solo adventure, even just 24 hours, one night on your own away is a really useful thing that I think more people should try to do if they dare. funny that when I'm on home in normal life I get so annoyed with how boring the routines of daily life are like, oh this just sucks I just want to go on an adventure and then you go on an adventure and you quickly realize that that is the most routine life you'll ever have ever oh, yeah. like on a bike tour you wake up at the same time you put the same little things in the same corner of your pack you eat the same thing for breakfast <laughs> you wear the same clothes you cycle all day and then in the evening you put your tent up with your stuff in all the same little pouches exactly the same way. It's an unbelievably repetitive routine thing. And I've, I've really noticed that when trying to write about a long journey, like, wow, I've, I've just been on a massive long bike ride. I'm going to write a really great story about it. It's like, oh, wow, day one, day two, day three, it's all exactly the same. So I find when I'm at home, I really want to run away from routine repetitive life and then on an adventure that's kind of the reassuring comforting part of the whole thing it's yeah it's a funny contrast there that probably has something to do with the changing of environment on a moment-to-moment -moment basis because like like you said you are technically doing the exact same thing over and over and over again every day just packing up your bike putting up the tent eating food thinking about where you're going to eat next checking google maps and when you're at home let's say writing a book or taking all the video and transforming it into a little documentary, whatever it may be, you're doing sort of the same thing in a sense. You're just, you know, you're setting up your computer, you're making your coffee, et cetera. But the difference is when you're on the road, you're in a new place all the time versus when you're at home, you're just on the computer. I mean, do you find that you perceive time differently when you're on the road? It's interesting comparing the two because you said that when you're on the bike, maybe it's easier because it's always different. You're always in a new place, which I agree with. But the flip side of that, for example, if you're cycling across, let's say, Canada, is that right now I'm cycling down a road and there's a load of trees all around. A day later, right now I'm down a road and there's a load of trees all around. Or a week later, a month later. In a, in, perhaps in that sense, the environment isn't changing so much. And perhaps I think that I just have different expectations for what I want out of the day. So 
When I'm at home, I'm just thinking, man, my life's so boring. I want an amazing life like my neighbor's got. I want an expensive car like him. And I want a new iPhone. And I want to get paid loads of money, whatever it is. And, and this restaurant sucks. I want to go to that restaurant. Perhaps I'm, that sort of stuff I'm thinking. Whereas yeah. when I'm on a bike, my priorities for the day, even though it's totally routine and repetitive, my definition of a good day is I get up in the morning, I cycle a bunch of miles, I have some food, and I find somewhere to sleep at night. And if I've done those things, then I've lived well that day. And there's a great satisfaction, perhaps, from the simplicity. So maybe it's about the way we frame the different compartments of our life, perhaps. And then in terms of time, what I what I notice in adventures is that somehow minutes when your buttocks are hurting or something or it's pouring with rain, minutes can feel like hours. And when you're cycling down and you're really tired and hungry, a few hours down a road can just feel like an eternity. And yet uh, days just go, maybe go by in a blink of an eye and then suddenly a week's gone by and a month's gone by. And so, yes, yeah, some, some bits of time seem really big. Some seem really small. But something I really enjoy when I'm on adventures as much as possible, I like to not know what actual time it is. And I know that an adventure is going well when I don't even know what day it is. And I just really like waking up when it's time for my body to wake up and going to sleep when I'm tired and eat when I'm hungry and then in between do some cycling. So I really enjoy not knowing what actual time it is. I suppose that changes depending on the adventure as well, because I remember in your micro adventure book, you were speaking about how people work from nine to five, but nobody really does anything between five and nine the next day. And I imagine that in those moments when you're more constricted with your time, time is actually very, very crucial. Speaking about feeling satisfaction from your work, whether it be out on the road or at home writing a book. How do you derive satisfaction differently in those two scenarios? There's the satisfaction of the journey itself. So getting from A to B successfully and completing your mission, that's satisfying. And then, of course, within that journey itself, there's the all the smaller satisfactions of, oh, great, I found a grocery store, I can eat some food today. And the sort of small little wins that you get every day on the road that accumulate into the win, the satisfaction of doing the whole journey, and then come home and the creative storytelling side of it of how can I create a nice film out of this or a book or a magazine article, develop the photo that I've taken, that's all creatively satisfying. And I think what's important about these two categories that I've said so far is that they are intrinsic satisfactions. You know, they feel good with inside you, even if nobody ever knows what's happened or says, well done, you're amazing. It just feels good to have done those things because then the next stage is moving on to the sort of extrinsic satisfaction. So once I've written a book, then of course I want it to sell. I want people to buy the book. I want to go up the rankings on Amazon and I want to get reviews coming in and I want people to say, wow, this is the best book I've ever read. You're amazing. And I will look at some rivals of mine and if my book's ahead of theirs, yes, I'll feel good. And if their book's ahead of mine, then I'll feel jealous and resentful. And I do talks for events as well. And when if a company comes and says, we'll pay you so much money, I think, yes, that's great. I'm worth this much money. And that makes me feel proud. And I go to the venue and the audience claps really loudly and they tell me I'm amazing. And that makes me feel good. The problem with all of these ones, though, of course, is that they can not happen or right. they could not happen as much as you want them to happen or they can fade away. Well, they will fade away and crumble when no one's interested in reading any of my books anymore. So it's very hard to do, but I very much try and focus on the 
intrinsic satisfaction of successes of doing this journey and writing this book is enough in itself the end anything on top of that is fluff and bonus and it's easy to say that hard to do in practice but i think if you want to be satisfied and actually happy that's the they're the key metrics to focus on Something that I would like to talk about is this idea and this concept of slow travel. I watch a lot of these documentaries similar to the ones that you produce. I'll, I, I don't know where this idea came from necessarily. It was about a gentleman who was cycling across the world or a, a continent or, or something along these lines. And he stumbled upon a man who was doing the same thing he was doing, but he was walking across the same distance. And he asked the guy, why are you walking this crazy distance when you can do something that's a little less strenuous? And this gentleman who was walking said that anything that would be faster than walking is too fast for him. And he only does five to 10, maybe 15 kilometers at a time every day. And on the bike, as you know, we're traveling 70, 80, 100 kilometers or more every day. What is your opinion on this concept of slow travel? Well, I think it's ridiculous that that gentleman was rushing so much around the world by walking when what I like to do is crawl because oh, okay. I crawl <laughs> and therefore in a day I see only one kilometer, but I get to notice every single ant along the way. What I think to that is that he's both right and wrong. I think he's, first of all, the wrong. I think he's wrong in making it a comparative business. I think uh, sure. if, if it feels like the correct speed to you, then that's great. Having said that, I have found from my own experiences that in the long run, I get more satisfaction and substance and meaning out of any journey if I can make myself go slower. Sure. My natural inclination is always to try and sort of hasten on a little bit like, oh, I won't stop at this village because let's get some more kilometers done. But if I do stop at that village, I'll meet some curious old gentleman who and it'll be really interesting and great. So I always try to make myself slow down to fight against my tendency to rush. And for that reason, I think walking journeys are great. The downside, though, with walking journeys is they are too slow. And therefore, if you're going down the road and you see a little detour to a village one kilometer down here, one kilometer detour on a foot is quite a hassle. And mm -hmm. you're in total agony because walking's total agony. And so you don't bother, you just keep going. Whereas on a bike, you have a bit more flexibility to go that one kilometer detour if you have the mindset to go slowly and to see the interesting old gentleman. So I do think trying to make yourself go as slow as possible generally makes the experience richer and I've found walking journeys to be really rewarding for that reason but overall I love the bicycle as a perfect compromise it's slow but not too slow painful but not too painful you're traveling lightweight but not insanely lightweight for me it's just the perfect adventure machine and if you cycle but try and remind yourself to slow down and accept detours and invitations then I think that's a good way to be you are an author, of course. You've written, I believe, 16 books now. And my question for a lot of people in your position where myself as an outsider, I take inspiration from individuals like yourself. But where do you take inspiration from? What books and what stories have really inspired you throughout the years? Well, a lot of my inspiration for even starting adventures came from reading books. Right. And it was reading books that encouraged me to want to do adventures. And therefore, that was one of the reasons I wanted to write them, sort of completing the circle almost. So 
where where I, we're recording this, I've got a big shelf of travel and adventure books behind me that spurred me on. And I was, I suppose, I was inspired by a variety of things. There's the sort of crazy, insane, tough guy people. So a couple of British guys like Ranulph Fiennes and Benedict Allen, who just did some insane hardcore journeys that I used to dream about. Thinking, oh, I wonder if I did that, then maybe I could prove myself to be a, a worthy man. That sort of adventure stuff. And then there's the more sort of literary adventures like Laurie Lee, who originally walked through Spain playing his violin and in whose footsteps I followed badly or uh, Wilfred Thesiger who travelled through the empty quarter desert in Arabia and wrote beautifully about it and that inspired me to go do a a imitation of that sort of trip so I've enjoyed those sorts of books as well I find it hard to just pinpoint some books but just generally reading a lot of travel books was what tipped me from thinking oh those are cool stories to thinking I wonder if I could try something like that myself and then you're on the way to getting out the front door and beginning then I imagine that at some point there must have been a moment for yourself where you realized that your life was going to be dedicated to adventure and travel and seeking into the unknown. Can you describe this tipping point where you realized that your life was going to be dedicated to this craft of adventure and seeking the unknown? It's interesting the this period of time my adventures have been spanning because my first adventure, 1996, I spent a year living in Africa teaching a little village school. And that got me really excited about wanting to see more of the world. So in 1997, I cycled through Pakistan and China in my first year at university. And that just made me think, wow, this is crazy to do something like this. I want to go do more of it. But I think it's interesting to talk to someone of your age about when I cycled around the world, I had no phone. I had no laptop with me. And the, the the concept of sort of crossing a continent, but without a phone and having literally a paper map. That yeah. to fold out which covered an entire continent now I look back I think that's crazy there's no way yeah. I'd try and cycle across Africa without Google Maps these days that must be nuts so there's definitely a big span of things that have changed since then but also the lovely thing about adventure is the that the essence of it hasn't really changed you're still on a bicycle your legs still hurt you're still dreaming of the next snack and that the good stuff all stays the same but to go to your actual question which was about the tipping point I was training to be a high school teacher And as part of that, you had to go and spend time in the school teaching the kids. And they just put you in some school and you get on with it. So I was teaching biology to a bunch of uh, teenage kids in England. And the head teacher, the principal of the school, he said to me one day, you're doing a really good job here. You're going to be a good teacher. Would you like to come and have a full time job here when you graduate? And as a student, that's fantastic. Like, wow. Firstly, he thinks I'm good. Secondly, I've been offered a job now. I'm going to get paid a professional salary. I could just now do this job for the next 40 years. And that's not a bad life. And then I thought I could still be doing this job in 40 years until I've got this guy's job as the principal of the school. I've got to do something now. And so I wrote him a letter saying, thank you very much for offering me this job, but I'm going to go cycle around the world instead. And that was the moment for me of commitment to thinking, right, this is the thing I've got to do. I can come back later and become a good high school biology teacher if I want to. But probably if I don't take this opportunity now, I probably will never do it. So yeah, writing that letter was the tipping point for me. I have one last question for you here. Actually, I wrote something down that I'll read out to you. So 
As we come to a close on our conversation, I'd like to ask a question that ties together the threads of adventure, personal growth, and the impact of your experiences. Reflecting on all the miles traveled, the myriad of cultures you've encountered, and the vast array of challenges overcome, if you had the opportunity to send one message to the entire world encapsulated in a single sentence or idea based on the wisdom you've gained over your journeys, what would that message be and why? <laughs> Crikey. Okay, so I've got one sentence to change the world. So, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of rambling in order to formulate my thoughts, which I hope I'll then turn into a sentence at the end of my ramble. My experience of going all around the world was that it made me love the world. I just thought, wow, this is such a great world. It's fantastic. I love the world. <laughs> uh, deep, insightful stuff. This is, I love it. But it was only when I started to, when I spent this year exploring my local map, like just staying close to home, that I really, really started to notice quite how much we're wrecking the world, how much we're losing, and how little most people still seem to care about that. And therefore, we need to take some action to do that and I think a great way to take action on fixing the world is by fixing your local neighborhood which then leads me on to my one sentence to the world which is think global explore local make a difference how about that Man, that's fantastic. Yeah, this sounds quite cheesy when I formulate it into a politician slogan. But what I mean by that is that I think we should all be caring about the world and the people on a much bigger scale than ourselves. But it's quite hard to know what to do because the world is so big and the problems are so vast and it's quite intangible. And we just think, oh, some world leaders should sort that out. But if you go into your local community and you see the trees are being chopped down to build shopping malls here, then that might motivate you to think we should stop chopping down trees trees, stop buying endless plastic junk, and you might actually start to take some action locally, which can start to snowball onto a bigger thing. But I think action only comes once you start to care about things, really. That is certainly very true, especially nowadays with the amount of damage we seem to be doing to the ecosystem, which is uh, unfortunate because in a sense, you're taking away things for people to explore in the future. And that's especially true in places where it's even more wild, like the Amazon, where we're cutting so much of that down. And it's just like, once that's gone, I mean, man, sometimes leaving things as is for the sake of just not satisfying our curiosity is the best thing to do. So anyways, Alistair, uh, I appreciate your time so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. And like I said, I have so many notes that I hope we can do another one of these in the future and we can delve into more topics and ideas and philosophies. So yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I've been honored to be a guest on your podcast. And uh, yeah, it's clear that you've done the notes and the research because you asked very good questions, which I appreciate. So yeah, thank you very much and good luck with your podcast and your adventures. Thank you for joining episode one of Trailmark. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alistair Humphreys. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to see more of this content, please feel free to follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and X. I hope you will take away that adventure does not need to be a far-flung endeavor. As the famous conservationist and writer John Muir once said, in every walk with nature, one receives far more than he seeks. I will see you back here next Monday for another exciting episode of Trailmark. And until then, strong winds and sunny days. I was sitting at home one evening, reading great works of literature. Actually, that's not entirely true. I was sitting at home one evening, 
thumbing mindlessly through the internet when I came across a fantastic... Uh, I completely stole the idea off a guy called Brendan Leonard who writes, he's on YouTube, on a Instagram as semi-rad. You know, the, the Seven Summits is a classic mountaineering challenge to climb the highest mountain on each continent. So Denali, Aconcagua, Everest, etc. Uh, right. And it's an epic adventure, but massively expensive and therefore privileged and hard to get to and a climate disaster and all those sort of things. So Brendan had the idea to just do the seven summits of his neighborhood, find the seven local hills where he lives and go run up them all. When I saw the video he made, I was like, oh man, I wish I'd had that idea. That is so perfect with my passion for local exploration. So I just stole his idea and I did my own seven summits of where I live. And I think it's a brilliant idea. I would love more people to just look on their local map and see the, the seven hills around their town. With, with, I mean, you could find the seven hills within one kilometre where you live, tiny ones, or 10 kilometres or 15, depending on how far you want to go. But I love the idea of different people in different local neighbourhoods climbing their little hills. And my hills weren't very interesting, but you, if you came from Canada all the way to England and walked up this hill, you'd be like, wow, mm. it's a cool little grassy English hill with these cool little old English villages. This is really interesting. So I tried to I tried to take the attitude myself to remember that everywhere is interesting. And it's not just when you go traveling off on a big adventure that you should be enthusiastic and curious. But if you take that mindset, mindset to all your travels, then everything becomes interesting. So yeah, thank you to Brendan for letting me steal the Seven Summits idea. Summertime, summertime, love's in its prime. Summertime, summertime, everything's just fine. But autumn came, autumn came, turned love into shame. And love's again, love's again.